Well, if you've got a Bible with you, turn to the book of Jonah this morning. Jonah tucked away there in the Old Testament. We start a new series today as we begin to work our way through this book over the next several weeks together. Um, and as we do that, I want to lay a little bit of foundational framework for you as we begin to work our way through this book, um, as a little bit of information kind of set the stage for you uh, that's going to, I think, serve you well over the course of the next several weeks. Uh, Jonah is among what as scholars have called a collection of books in the Old Testament known as the Minor Prophets. Now, when you hear that word, Minor Prophets, um, you're kind of going, why are they the minor guys and these guys are major? These guys are the varsity prophets over here like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then you got the minor league prophets like Jonah and Hosea and Habakkuk and all those other names I can't pronounce, right? So why is he one of the minor prophets? The minor prophets were called the minor prophets, not because their message was any less relevant or important, but because merely because of the length of their books or of their writings. So Isaiah is really, really long, and Jonah is really, really short, right? So it's part of the minor prophets. Now, when you read the book of Jonah, it reads differently than most any other prophetic book in the Old Testament. And here's, here's, here's kind of how it reads differently. If you read almost any other prophetic book in the Old Testament, you're going to read a lot of poetry. There's going to be a lot of, uh, of it's going to look, it's going to be laid out on the page like a poem, like a collection of poems. But when you read Jonah, 75% of Jonah is written as a narrative, as a story. It unfolds the life of, a, of the prophet that God calls. So, in fact, Jonah's prophecy in this book is only eight words long, right? He shows up, and the message that he preaches is eight words long. That's all he's gotten, and he says, amen, let's go eat, right? And so he's done with eight words. That's all he's got to deliver. And so 75% of the book is his actual story, and whenever we come to the book of Jonah, many times we come to it with memories, maybe from vacation Bible school, those of us who had grown up in church, or perhaps we come to it with at least some vague recollection that there's this big fish in the story, and we think the story's about the big fish in the book, okay? Now, I like big fish just as much as anybody else, maybe more than some of you in here, right? I like big fish just as much as anybody, but the story's not about a big fish, not about a big fish, and it's not about a flannel board in Sunday school where you show Jonah being thrown off of the boat and the whale coming along or the big fish coming along, right? The story's not about the fish. It's about the God who's got a heart for people, and he desires his people to have that same heart for those that he cares for. So when we come to the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah is not relegated. It shouldn't be relegated to our children's classes. It's many times, though, often where we try to relegate it. But when we come to the book of Jonah, what we're going to find over the next five weeks is that Jonah's story is our story. Jonah's story is our story. Now, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and he tells the story of a woman that he met in his congregation. And she'd been visiting for some time, and she had lots of questions about Christianity. So she comes to him with all these questions. And the, the issue for her, the issue that she's wrestling with, is the implication of salvation by sheer grace alone. And she comes to him, and she says, listen, I, I get it. Listen, if we were saved by our works then there would be a limit to what God could ask of us. In other words, we could draw a line and say, God, there, there, I, I'm not going to step across that line. You're not going to call me across that line. You're not going to draw me across that line. If we were saved by works and we had, had contributed in some way, shape, or form to God's saving work in our lives, and we've paid in kind of like a taxpayer, there's, only a, there's a limitation on what God could ask of us. But if salvation is by sheer, free, absolute grace, 
and nothing but grace. She said, there is no limit to what God could ask of me. God has given, if, if God really has given everything, then God could ask for everything. And you see, that's the intersection that Jonah finds himself at. And that's the intersection that you and I find ourselves at oftentimes in our own lives. And so what you're going to see is Jonah's story is your story. It's my story. It's our story. Now we'll start this morning in Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 3, and then we'll come back and unpack that together. In Jonah chapter 1, the book begins this way. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now there are several things that I think we need to understand out of this particular text. These three verses, short though they may be, there are probably 20 sermons that could be preached on these three verses. So I had to decide on one. And so that's what you're going to get this morning. All right. So what do we see in this text that really stands off the page to us and that shows us how our story is Jonah's story and Jonah's story is our story? First thing that I want you to see in this text is this, is that God sins. God comes to Jonah to send him out. If you look in verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. See, what God is doing in, in chapter 1 is what he's done with all of his other prophets that, that, that either ministered alongside of, before or after Jonah. In fact, you read the other prophets and you're going to see what comes very early on in their works is typically this call that they receive from God. And God says, here's what I want you to do. The word of the Lord comes to them to send them. And that's exactly what Jonah experiences here. So God is coming to Jonah to commission him, to call him, and to send him out. So when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, it's to send Jonah to where God would desire him to go and to do what God would desire him to do. Now, who is Jonah? Jonah is this guy who's a prophet in ancient Israel, in the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, he lived probably during the reign, or the second Kings tells us he lived during the reign of a king named Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II was a king in the northern um, kingdom of Israel who had this vision to expand Israel's borders and to increase and enlarge her territory. And Jonah, God through Jonah uh, supported that work of increasing and expanding the territory and the region that the northern kingdom would possess. And so Jonah prophesied that the borders would expand to a particular distance in a particular place. And the borders actually did indeed expand there. And so Jonah, at that, at that juncture in history, was known as a faithful prophet, a true prophet. Why? Because what he had predicted had actually come to pass. And so God comes to him and he says, I want you to rise and I want you to go, Jonah. I want you to go. I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, this is who God is sending. He's sending a prophet who in his past had been faithful and fruitful and that God had used as a true prophet to speak his word. But notice where God is sending him. God is sending him to Nineveh. 
Now, some of you go, well, that's really insightful. <laughs> what, is it, what does it mean that God is sending him to Nineveh? Right? Where is Nineveh? Nineveh is the capital of Assyria in Jonah's day. You think modern-day Iraq or Iran, somewhere in that area is where God is sending Jonah to what is called in Jonah chapter 1 a great city and an evil city. It's a city of great prominence and power and prestige and wealth in the ancient world, but it's also a very corrupt city that was filled with all kinds of rampant sin and immorality and perversion. In fact, one Jewish historian, Chaim Lewis, said it this way. He said, the Assyrians were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were the pitiless power-crazed foe. They showed no quarter in battle, uprooting entire peoples in their fury for conquest. They extinguished the northern kingdom of Israel. So for Jonah, Nineveh then was no ordinary city. It carried doom-laden, tragic memories. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. So when God comes to Jonah and he says, Jonah, I want you to get up from where you are in Israel, and I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to cry out against them because their evil has risen up before me. When God comes to Jonah to send him to Nineveh, it would be like God coming to an American pastor in 1942 saying, I want you to fly to Berlin, and I want you to camp out in the middle of Berlin in Nazi Germany, and I want you to stand on the street corners and preach that they must repent. Or to fly into Moscow in the middle of the Cold War at the height of the tension, and stand in the middle of Red Square and call for the Russians to repent. Or to get on a plane today and fly to Damascus, Syria, and stand on a street corner and try and gain a hearing with the leaders of ISIS and call for them to repent. That's where God is sending Jonah, to Jonah's enemies to those who would, who, who would just as soon take Jonah's life the moment he set foot in their city. Now, this says something about God, doesn't it? It says that God has a heart that beats with mercy and compassion and love and grace, even for those that we would consider to be at the bottom of the barrel. For our enemies, God loves and is moving out towards Nineveh and is calling Jonah to do the same. He's calling him and sending him because he has a heart of mercy. You notice in Matthew chapter 28, the very end of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus gathers his followers around him before he ascends up into heaven, what does he tell them? He says, go therefore and make disciples of who? Of all nations, of all peoples. It's a non-discriminatory commission to send them to people who are different than they are, to people who may even want to mistreat them to people who may even want to kill them. And yet here God is calling Jonah, commissioning him to take this message that he has pressed on his heart to this people who are far from God and filled with all kinds of evil. But how does Jonah respond? How does Jonah respond? I want you to notice a couple of things here. First of all, Jonah runs away from the God who calls him. Jonah runs away from the God who calls him. Notice, look at the first word in verse 3. 
In verse 3 of Jonah chapter 1, the very first word is but. But. Right? God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to cry out against it, for their evil has risen up before me. Now, those who are familiar with Jonah's ministry previously, that he'd been this faithful and fruitful prophet in Israel's history, they're expecting as they read the story for the first time to go, and so, right? So Jonah gets up, and he hightails it to Nineveh. But there's not a so there. There's a but there. In other words, Jonah, Jonah, acts contradictory to where God had called him and commissioned him to go. God says, here's where I'm wanting you to head. And Jonah says, no thanks. No thanks. Where there should be a so, there is a but in verse 3. But where does Jonah head? Where does Jonah run? The text tells us that he goes down to Joppa, which was a port city on Israel's coast, and he hires a ship, pays the fare, and he gets on board to head to a city called Tarshish. Now, most scholars believe that Tarshish is located at the tip of modern-day Spain. So take a look at this map. This is where God is sending Jonah to Nineveh. Where does Jonah wind up? Where does he head? What, what course does he set for himself? 180 degrees in the opposite direction of where God is calling him to go. God says, go to Nineveh, 550 miles from where he was there in Israel. So he gets on a boat to sail several thousand miles west. God says, go east. And Jonah says, I'm going west as far as I can go west. Because in Jonah's day, that was the end of the earth. So here's what Jonah's trying to do. He's trying to get as far away from where God is calling him to go as he possibly can. He wants nothing to do with where God is prompting him to go, where God is prodding him to go, where God is calling him to go, where God is commissioning him to go. So he gets on a boat and he heads as far west as his mind can possibly conceive. And he runs and he runs and he runs. Now we may say, how foolish for Jonah to think he can escape God, right? Doesn't he know Psalm 139 is a prophet of God? Doesn't he know Psalm 139 where, where the psalmist says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Doesn't Jonah know Psalm 139? Where can you go from God's presence? You can't escape it. But here's the issue with Jonah. Jonah is not fleeing. Theologians call God being everywhere. They call it his omnipresence. It's a characteristic only God has. Jonah is not fleeing from God's omnipresence, but as Sinclair Ferguson says, Jonah is fleeing from God's felt presence. In fact, you notice in the text where it says Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. In the Hebrew, it literally says this. He's fleeing from God's face. The face of God. So Jonah's not fleeing from God spatially as if he thinks he can somehow escape, go someplace that God is not. What Jonah is fleeing from is not God's spatial presence, but his relational presence in his life. His felt presence. 
that place where he senses God calling him to cut against the grain of his comfort, that place where he senses God prompting him to move out of what would be natural and feel normal for him. That's what Jonah's running from. That place where God takes his thumb and he presses it on Jonah's heart. And he brings conviction. And he brings call. And he brings a commission. That's what Jonah's trying to escape. You know what? That's what I try and escape sometimes as well. And I'd be willing to bet that you do too. See, all of us have fled from God's relational presence in our lives. We may say, yes, God is everywhere, and I know that I can go nowhere on the face of the earth where I can escape him. I can, get, I can ascend to the highest mountain. I can dive to the deepest depth. I can go as far west or as far east or as far north or as far south as I can possibly conceive of going, and I can't escape God's presence, but I'm fleeing and pushing back against God's felt presence in my life. And oftentimes when we do, we do the same thing Jonah does, is we turn and we head as far as we can get in the opposite direction. See, some of us, God has been calling. He's been calling us to salvation. He's put us in positions where we've heard the gospel articulated whether it be in this church or other churches, whether it be in our youth or in our childhood or whether it be in our early adulthood. And God's been pressing on us to say, listen, you are not saved by anything that you can contribute or anything that you can accomplish or anything that you can achieve. You're only saved by what the finished work of Jesus Christ, what he has accomplished, what he has achieved. And there's some of us who want to maintain control of our lives so bad that we push back against that and we run as far as we can the opposite direction. God may, be calling, God may have been calling some of us to salvation, and we run away to try and maintain control in our lives. What about God's call to missions and evangelism? See, some of us live next door to people, and God hasn't said, go to Nineveh, but he said, go to your neighbor. And yet we still keep our mouths shut and stay inside our little four walls and cocoon ourselves away from any potential conflict or any potential lack of comfort. And we run away from it. Or God's call to generosity to leverage our resources to care for those in need and see kingdom work advance. And we turn and we run the opposite direction toward greed. Or perhaps God's calling some of us to community. Right? We've kind of played the long Lone Ranger Christian for quite some time now. Right? We've kind of done things on our own. We've never really pressed into the lives of other people, let them press into our lives. God's called us to community. We turn, we run the other way, thinking, well, I don't, right? Church is wherever I am, right? That's where church is. And we neglect the gathered people of God as the author of Hebrews admonishes us not to do. And he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. But as you see the day of Jesus' return on the horizon all the more clearly and all the more closer, he says, you should continue to press into each other. Or perhaps for some of us, it's God's call to honesty and authenticity, and we turn and we run away towards secrecy and hypocrisy. Or for some of us, maybe it's God's call to covenant, to commitment, to lasting, abiding, faithful relationships with a person or with a people. 
And we run away toward consumerism, just using people as opposed to really committing to them. Or perhaps it's God's call to service, to pick up the towel and to wash the feet of those who are around us, to help step into the needs that exist in our church and in our community. And we run away towards selfishness to keep our time for ourselves. And when, when that happens, you know what happens when that happens? Is that we wind up living off of memories of obedience as opposed to the present experience of it. That's where Jonah was, right? He'd been faithful and fruitful, and God had used him in the past. And so Jonah winds up at, at, at this juncture in his life. He's living only off of memories of past obedience to God and not the present experience of it. And listen, some of us are that way right now. Right? Remember the last church that I was in, I really was invested and I really contributed and I really served. I really haven't done much since I've been here. And while yesterday's obedience may set the stage for today's and tomorrow's, it cannot replace it. See, in God's economy, you can't just make an investment today and then just live off the interest of that for the rest of your life. You've got to keep investing and keep investing and keep investing and keep investing. For some of us, it might be God's call to purity, and we run away from fidelity in marriage and abstinence outside of marriage toward perversion and promiscuity. See, just like Jonah, when God calls us in a particular direction, oftentimes, whenever we are resisting his felt presence in our lives, that place where he takes his thumb and presses on our hearts, we run away in the opposite direction. In the exact opposite direction. Jonah runs away from the God that calls him. I know I've been there. And I imagine you have as well. And in fact, this is one of the first planks that you and I have to lay if we're going to truly come to faith in Christ. You know what? Some of us came in this room this morning seeing ourselves as, as a needy person. Or maybe you came in this room this morning seeing yourselves as a broken person who needs to be helped. Or maybe you came in this room this morning, this morning in the room this morning seeing yourselves as basically generally just a, a good person. who's kind of got some things together in their life. See, unless you and I come to grips with the fact that our very core is that we're not a needy person, we're not a broken person, at our very core, we're not just a good person, at our very core, we're a fugitive, a fugitive whose natural bent is to resist God and run from him every time he comes to call. That's my natural bent, and that's yours as well. Notice what else Jonah runs away from. Jonah not only runs away from the God who calls him, but he also runs away from the image of the God who created him. Jonah's not only running away from God, he's running away from himself, who he was created to be. Notice later on in verse 3. Look what the text tells us. that Every time Jonah moves, what does he do? He goes down. He goes down to Joppa, and then he pays the fare, and he goes down into the boat. He's moving, he's descending, he's moving away from the presence of God, and he's moving away from the image of God. 
You see, in the text, we're not, in Jonah chapter 1, we're not necessarily told why Jonah runs. We just see that he does. But if you fast forward in the story and you get to chapter 4, verse 2, you're not, you, then you begin to see the motivational structure of Jonah's heart. Why is it that he's running away from God? God's calling him this in one direction, and he's running in the opposite direction, but why? Listen to what Jonah says in Jonah chapter 4. In Jonah chapter 4, it's very interesting because after the people of Nineveh repent and after Jonah is sitting outside of the city of Nineveh sulking, in Jonah chapter 4 verse 2 it says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah says he ran not because he was afraid that he would be unsuccessful. Jonah said, I ran because I was afraid that I would be successful and that they would repent and that you would relent from the calamity that you had forecasted for them, that you would turn aside from your wrath and you would show them grace. Now, why would Jonah run away from where God was sending him? Because he was afraid that God was actually going to use him to draw people to repentance. The only reason that I could conceive of, as I reflected on this text for the last few weeks, is this. Because fundamentally, Jonah, Jonah understood that he was different from those people in Nineveh. He was different from those people who, had, who were wrapped up in all kinds of evil and immorality and perversion. Jonah was different from those people who were rebelling against God and resisting God. Jonah was different from those people. See, Jonah's issue at the very bottom of his heart was his pride. See, for Jonah, what made him different was that he was a good, upstanding kind of Israelite, very moral. His, his life was clean as a whistle. The problem at the bottom of it, though, is that he was all of that activity and all of that cleanliness was being driven by pride for Jonah. And he couldn't conceive or fathom of God giving grace to his enemies. See, at the very bottom of it, the problem with Jonah is his pride. It wasn't an intellectual problem, right? He looked back at Exodus chapter 34 where God passes by Moses and God declares himself to be the Lord, the Lord, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He knew Exodus 34 and he knew every time the psalmist repeated that text, that, that verse throughout the psalms, he knew. He knew these things intellectually. Jonah's problem was volitional. At the level of his heart, he didn't want what God wanted. He didn't want those people to come to repentance. It was an issue for Jonah of pride. And Jonah doesn't, and so, so as Jonah's running away, he's not only running away from the God that calls him, but the God that created him and formed him and fashioned him in his image. And God's heart was beating with mercy for the people of Nineveh, and Jonah's heart was beating with pride. God was moving out towards Nineveh, and Jonah was stepping back away from them. And 
And as he did, he descended lower and lower and lower and became less and less and less human as he resisted the very heart and image of God. And the same thing happens in your life and in mine. You know, whenever we turn and we run away from reconciliation, we run away toward resentment, and all of a sudden bitterness begins to fester and it begins to take root in our hearts. We become less and less human in the way that we interact with other people. Whenever we run away, we run away uh, from, from covenant toward consumerism. We're running away from who we were created to be. We weren't created to use people who are around us. We were created to love them and to serve them. When we choose perversion over purity, we're running away from who we were created to be. We're not made for fantasy and pornography. We were made for reality and the joys of that reality and the confines of a marriage. Or whenever we choose selfishness over service, we're running away from who we were created to be. When we choose greed over generosity, we're running away from who we were created to be. When we choose to be in control of our own lives rather than submitting ourselves to God's control, we're running away from who he created us to be as his image bearers in this world. And when that happens, what you'll find is, is that your life will begin to unravel slowly and you'll become less and less substantial and more and more hollow. You'll become very transparent. All right, in his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis written, wrote this fictional account. And The Great Divorce is all about, while we may all interact and be a part of this great human race while we're here on the face of the earth, that each and every one of us is going to face a moment in our lives where our lives are drawn to an end. And in that end, there's going to be a great divorce and separation of people. Some unto eternal joy and some unto eternal pain. Some to heaven and some to hell. Lewis talked about that as a great divorce and separation between these two. And those who had found themselves in this eternal pain of hell find themselves, uh, the, the whole book is this story about how those who are in hell, that's called Graytown, where everything is just very dreary and dull, and the people who are there are transparent and hollow. They get on a tour bus, and they take the tour bus to the foothills of heaven, and heaven is in, the, is in the mountains. And as they arrive there on the tour bus to the foothills of heaven, they look off onto the horizon. What they see, what they see whenever they cast their vision up toward the mountains is they, are, they see the most radiant, full, and beautiful sight they have ever seen in their lives. And the men and women who come down from the mountains to greet them and petition them to leave behind Greytown and the promise to help them to travel to the mountains that lie on the horizon, a place of inexplicable joy. And they promised them that as they travel from that bus stop up to the mountains, they would become less and less transparent as they move toward the presence of God, the face of God. They would become more and more substantial and less and less hollow. And they implore them to leave behind Greytown and to ascend up to the mountains. Now, it's a fictional account. In the very beginning of the book, he says, listen, I'm not projecting this is what's going to be like one day. I'm not saying. He's, he's saying all I'm trying to do is capture the essence, the essence of what the divorce, of the fact that there's going to be a divorce. 
and that those who spend eternity with God in heaven will have inexplicable, radiant, full joy, and those who are separated from him will know nothing but pain and weeping and gnashing of teeth. But Lewis says, those who take the hands of those who come down from the mountains to greet them, and they begin to walk up toward the mountains, up toward the foothills, they become more, less transparent, more opaque. You can't see through them anymore. Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed that those in your life, those who are around you, right? See, what Jonah's problem is here is what Jonah has done is he's taken a big cap and he's placed it on top of his yes to God. He put it on top of his yes to God. Listen, when I was a kid, uh, my parents, before they connected city water in the, in, uh, along our street, they used to have a well, and we would get our water from the well. And so whenever they came, we went through with city water and connected us all up, hooked us all up. My parents put a big, large cement cap on top of that well so that none of us, their children, and none of the children in the, in the neighborhood would fall down into that well. So the big, massive cement cap on top to keep whatever was down there down there and to keep us from getting down there. And see, for, for Jonah, he had this large cement cap, that, or this large boulder that he rolled over the top of his cap. He capped his yes to God. He said, God, this far and no further. This much and no more. But have you ever noticed in your life that those people who seem to be the most substantial and solid are those who have an uncapped yes to God? So whatever God asked... And wherever God sins, even with, even with a, a sense of, I, God, I don't know how all this is going to turn out, but because you're sending and because you're calling and because you're commissioning, I'm going to say yes. And they step into that. Have you ever noticed how those people tend to be the most solid and substantial people? Whereas those who have a cap on their yes to God, are those folks who seem to be a little more transparent and a little more hollow. See, Jonah is descending not only from God, but also from who he was created to be because he's got this cap on his yes. Now, what's going to help you and I get rid of that cap on our yes to God so when God calls, when God commissions, when God presses his thumb on our hearts, that we don't turn and head the opposite direction, but we turn and we embrace the face of God, his presence in our lives, and we say yes. Here's, let me tell you, the only thing powerful enough to, to, to obliterate that cap that you've placed on your yes to God and that I've done on mine is this. And this is something Jonah couldn't have seen in his day. But you and I can. You and I have to see that the word of God has not only come to us, but it's come for us. The word of God has not only come to us, but he's come for us. So when you think of the word of God coming to you, you think of God coming to say, do this, do this, do this, go here. And that's what Jonah received. He received that kind of word. And those of us who have grown up in a very religious home or a very religious uh, culture and community, you're probably very familiar with the word of God coming to you, saying, this is how you should live, and this is what you should do, and this is where you should go. 
But unfortunately, those of us who've grown up in very religious backgrounds, we may not have always seen that God's word not only comes to us, but the word of God has come for us. You see, nearly 800 years later, there was another prophet that God sent. Another prophet that God would send. And in John chapter 1, we're told that he, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then down in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was, bef- because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. John says, John says the word is no longer just the message that God gives us about where you should go and what you should do and how you should live, but he's now the messenger is the word, and his name is Jesus. And he's not only come to you to give you an example of how you should live, but he's also come for you to live the way that you could not have and that you continue to fail to do. Because you see, all of us in our pride, we continue to to resist God, right? When we look at at God and we say, God's calling me to, to give up control. I don't want to give up control because if I give up control, then I won't be in control. And I'll have no idea where God will send me or what God will do in my life. How can I know I can trust him? Here's how you can know you can trust him to relinquish control and stop trying to pay off a debt so you can maintain leverage in that relationship. The only thing that will destroy your pride is to see his humility exercised on your behalf. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes these words. Listen to what he says. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Jesus didn't hold on to that equality with God and say, No! But when the Father came, he didn't put a cap on his yes to God. You know what Jesus did? He uncapped his yes for the glory of God and for your good and for my good. Paul goes on. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul goes on to say, therefore, God has highly exalted him that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue on earth and under the earth shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, there was another prophet that was sent, that was commissioned. And whenever the Father comes to him, and he says, I'm sending you to our enemies those who have rebelled against us, those who have resisted us, those who have fought tooth and nail to maintain control of their lives. Jesus doesn't cap his yes. He uncaps his yes so that God would receive glory and so that you and I would receive grace. Jesus uncapped his yes for you. And until you see that, That God's not only coming to you to tell you what to do, but he's also come for you because you couldn't do it until you see that. Listen, there won't be a foundation strong enough to support 
God coming to you to tell you how to live and where to go and what to do until you see that he's already come underneath to support the weight of that by coming for you. My hope and my prayer is that you, as an individual, and that we as a church, that we would uncap our yes to God, that we would stop living off memories of past obedience, and we would step out toward wherever God calls and however God commissions, wherever God is pressing on your heart right now, you would say, sign me up. Sign me up. Because Jesus came for me. I will go for him. Let's pray together. Father, we come today with hearts filled with gratitude and love. Gratitude for your grace and love for your person, who you are and what you've done. And though Jonah could have never seen this, Because we are Christians, we must see it. Because we live in this era, we must see it. Help us to see that your word, it still comes to us to tell us what we should do and how we should live and where we should go. But the word has come for us to lay a foundation upon which the weight of where we should go and what we should do and how we should live can rest. So that our response to you be one of joy and gladness and not duty and burden. Father, for those in the room this morning who are running from you right now, running from your call to salvation, running from your call to generosity, running from your call to community, running from your call to authenticity, running from your call to service, running from your call to purity, running from your call. Those who have capped their yes, and because of that, their lives are unraveled, and they feel very hollow and transparent. I pray that this morning they would stop running and they would see. They would turn around And cast their gaze back toward your face and toward your presence. And they would find your grace waiting. We pray it in Jesus' name.